Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatched, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And the grand deception that we want to take on today is that of conscience and what it is and what it is not. I mean, it seems like, you know, whenever you talk about something as a matter of conscience, all of a sudden things start getting kind of fuzzy and foggy and people seem to think that, well, just kind of anything goes. And actually, it's the, the polar opposite. You know, conscience is where we find truth and where we find ironclad truths that lead us, you know, in the way that we should and should not go. And so I think that, you know, when we look at conscience, my own experience in dealing with folks and trying to work with matters of conscience and so on, it really gets kind of difficult because so many people just don't really have very well-formed consciences at all. And where this always kind of comes into play is whenever you know, the things like the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes or the teachings of the gospel or the the writings of St. Paul, you know, people will read these things and say, well, that's all very, very nice. But then all of a sudden, when one of those teachings makes a direct claim on my behavior, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, there's there's got to be an escape valve here. There's got to be a side exit. There's got to be a way out. And a lot of times what people appeal to is conscience. And, um, you know, the I'm sure if you in, in just any human being that's dealt with this could probably come up with a zillion examples. I know that um, we priests can, you know, could spend the next. 36 years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week here on the radio waves and just give you anecdote after anecdote and example after example. A couple of examples that come to mind. I remember some years ago when I was the, the pastor, the administrator, I guess, at, um, at the parish in Ellis. And again, this isn't just to pick on St. Mary's Parish in Ellis because you find this everywhere. But I had a couple come in for marriage preparation and they were living together. And I explained to them, well, you know, this is really kind of a difficult situation because we have a very active CYO program here at, at St. Mary's in Ellis. And lots of people, lots of our young people come to this and they'll probably be at your wedding, too. And so, you know, what kind of a message do, do do I as the priest at your wedding and the parish that your wedding is going to take place in, what kind of a message are we sending to these young people if you come in and have this so-called traditional Catholic wedding and you're not living a traditional Catholic lifestyle? And the little bride-to-be in total sincerity says, well, Father, I admit what we're doing is against the religion. And she makes little air quotes with her fingers, you know. I admit what we're doing is against the religion, but I'm okay with it, okay? And see, that's a perfect example of, you know, what conscience is not. You know, conscience is not a way to relativize truth. Conscience is not a way to um, to say that, you know, somehow or another that, you know, we can just get out of things as, you know, kind of as a, a side exit. In fact, Pope Francis in Amoris Laetitiae, here's a little quote. He says, ultimately, it is easy nowadays to confuse genuine freedom with the idea that each individual can act arbitrarily as if there were no truths, values, principles to provide guidance and everything were possible and permissible. That's exactly what that young woman said. I admit that what we're doing is against religion, but I'm okay with it. Anything is permissible. Now we'll get back to um, to Pope Francis. He says, the ideal of marriage marked by a commitment to exclusivity and stability is swept aside whenever it proves inconvenient or tiresome. 
The fear of loneliness and the desire for stability and fidelity exist side by side with a growing fear of entrapment in a relationship that could hamper the achievements of one's own personal goals. So again, you know, we can, we can see this idea that if conscience means, well, there's side exits. Conscience means that, you know, I have the, the, the teachings of the scriptures and the teachings of the church that I am asking to witness this wedding of mine that tell me that living together outside of marriage is fornication and a mortal sin, and that if I receive the sacrament of matrimony, and if there's a mass with the wedding, the sacrament of the Eucharist, having prepared for it by engaging in the mortal sin of fornication, well, then I take those two sacraments and I make sacrileges out of them, which makes, makes it even worse. And so having to face that, then we look for the side exits. Well, my conscience says, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this. So again, the, the first thing that conscience is not is a side exit. Also, just as a little aside, when people do prepare for sacraments in that way, and enter into them in the state of mortal sin, they can always go to confession, you know, and after, you know, maybe hopefully after they've seen, you know, seen the light and they realize that they did not prepare for marriage in the best way. And then they, they later go to confession and say that, well, you know, we were living together before we got married. And, you know, our celebration of the sacrament of matrimony and Eucharist that day was a sacrilege. And I'm sorry for that. Well, then the good news is not only they are forgiven, but then all the graces that, that they denied themselves on that wedding day by receiving the sacrament of the Eucharist and matrimony is a big farce. Now those graces will come flooding into them. So, you know, there's some good news there. So we shouldn't just give up. But the point, though, is my first point in talking about conscience is conscience is not a side exit. Conscience is not an escape valve. The other interesting thing I found, you know, years ago when I was teaching at TMP, we were talking about conscience one day and in the senior class on morality and we were talking about conscience and, and I was explaining to the troops, I said, you stop and you think about this. You know, if God brings the world to an end right now and all of us are standing in front of God waiting our turn to get judged, I said, if you have Father Fred and you have a TMP student and you have a Hayes High student, I said, who's going to receive the severest judgment? And they all correctly said, well, you. I said, that's right. And why is that? Well, because I've had ample opportunity, you know, years and years and years to study this stuff, to pray about it, to reflect upon it, which is my job. And so, you know, on the day of judgment, um, I don't really have very many excuses. But then I said, well, then who would be the second? And they said, well, probably us. I said, yeah, because you get to come to religion class five days a week and, you know, we get to study this stuff. And then, you know, of course, you know, the Hayes High student who is denied the study of their religion in school, since they would appear before God for judgment, not being as spiritually prepared, you know, they would they would get, you know, get off with the with the lesser judgment. And then so one of the kids kind of jokingly, but in a certain sense, kind of true, puts his hands over his ears and says, then father, then don't teach us anymore. Okay. And so this idea that if I have a defunct conscience or if I have a defective conscience or a weak conscience and I don't know any better, then somehow or another that gets me in the back door on the day of judgment. And again, that's not what conscience is about either. And so again, those two kind of fallacious ideas of what conscience is about, that, you know, conscience is, is a side exit, it's a way out that I can relativize whatever truths I've been taught because, well, my conscience is okay with it, that doesn't work. Or the idea, well, I just won't form my conscience, and that way I have a good excuse on the day of judgment, well, that's kind of a disaster too, and we'll talk about that in a little bit too. But, so before we get to this, what I really kind of want to do is... Then the first part of the program is 
with with a lot of these things, the scriptures are really not a whole lot of help in regards of them explaining to us in a systematic kind of methodical way. But instead, this, what the scriptures are, the scriptures are a number of stories and parables and things like that. And then out of those stories and parables and letters and apocalyptic writings and prophecies and things like that, the theologians go through and extract the truths out and then put them into a, into a more systematic way. That's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church is. So if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you know, it, it's a big, thick book and there's all kinds of things in there. But you look down the footnotes and every footnote is a reference back to Scripture somehow where they've, you know, where they've pulled these things out. And then we try to organize them and systematize them in some way. But basically what I'm going to be talking about today is going to come from the Gospel of St. Luke, from the Catechism, from Gaudium et Spes, from the documents of Vatican II, and we'll go back and look at a little bit more of Pope Francis's Amoris Laetitiae. But what I want to look at is the, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12 about the vigilant and faithful servants, and it's kind of in two parts. And so again, we'll take advantage of the glory of Catholic Radio here to be able to take some time to look at this and, and look at it in some detail. Okay, and so in Luke chapter 12, we're looking at verses 35 to 48. So again, if you want to get your Bible out sometime and take a look at this, you can read it at your own leisure. But it says here, Jesus says, Gird your loins and light your lamps and be like servants who await their master's return from a wedding, ready to open immediately when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds vigilant on his arrival. Amen, I say to you, he will gird himself, have them recline at table, and proceed to wait on them. And should he come in the second or third watch and find them prepared in this way, blessed are those servants. Be sure of this, if the master of the house had known when the hour than when the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be prepared for an hour that you do not expect the Son of Man will come. So again, in a, in a parabolic way, you know, using a parable, that's Jesus warning us to you know, make sure that our consciences are sharp. Then Peter chimes in and says, and this is the second part of the reading, starting in verse 41. Then Peter said, Lord, is this parable meant for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, who then is that faithful and prudent steward whom the master will put in charge of his servants to distribute the food allowance at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who the master on arrival finds doing so. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his property. Now, here in verses 45 on, this is the part that I really want to focus on. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and eat and drink and get drunk, then that servant's master will come on an unexpected day and at an unexpected hour and will punish him severely and assign him a place with the unfaithful. And here's where it all comes to. Here's where the rubber hits the road. Everybody listening? Very important. Listen to this. This is in verse 47. The servant who knew his master's will, but did not make preparations nor act in accord with his will, shall be beaten severely. And the servant who was ignorant of his master's will, but acted in a way deserving of a severe beating, shall be beaten only lightly. Much will be required of the person entrusted with much, and still more will be demanded of the person entrusted with more. And that kind of goes back to the, the conversation I had with my TMP students some years ago. Much will be required of the one within, entrusted with much. I, as a priest, have been entrusted with much, so I will be, much will be demanded of me. Those who have been entrusted with less will have less demanded of them. But again, going back to, again to verse 47. The servant who knew the master's will, but did not make preparations nor act in accord with his will, shall be beaten severely. 
the one who knew what he was supposed to do and didn't do it is in trouble. Okay? The servant who is ignorant to the master's will and enacted in a way deserving of a severe beating will be beaten only lightly. Okay? So there you have, you know, kind of the core of what we're going to talk about here in the program today. It come, you know, it's in a parable, but then Pope Francis talks about it in Amoris Laetitiae. The documents of Vatican II in Gaudium et Spes talks about conscience. And, um, and then we'll talk about conscience from the, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And so the first one I want to read, again, is an excerpt from Gaudium et Spes, which means joy and hope. It was the document um, from Vatican II dealing with the church in the modern world. And when you talk about the modern world, it doesn't mean, you know, people would see that and they go, oh, yeah, you know, the old stuck in the dark ages Catholic church dealing with a world that has cell phones and contraceptives and jet air travel and so on. You know, the church is trying to catch up. That's not what that means at all. Modernism is a way of thinking that, you know, really kind of took off in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries, basically because of the explosion of scientific knowledge, where a lot of people were thinking, you know, we don't really need God anymore. We can solve all of our problems using medicine and using economics and using politics and things like that. And so the idea of humbly bowing before the God who created us and seeking help and guidance from the, the creator of the universe, you know, that's passe. We don't do that anymore. We can, we can take care of all this on ourselves, by ourselves, and that's called modernism. And so what this document is about is how does the church who believes in God and believes in the providence of God and believes in the wisdom of God, how do we deal with a world that says, no, you know, our own wisdom is good enough for us. You know, we can take care of things for ourselves. Thank you very much. And so um, that's what this, this very, very long, you know, this document of Vatican II, it's almost a book in itself. This is what it deals with. Well, when it gets to the point of conscience, it says this, all right? And then I've always found this to be very profound. The first time I read it, probably 27 years ago in the seminary, I just went back and read it and reread it over and over and over again because there's so much in here, and I'll share it with you now. Again, this comes from the Gaudium et Spes, or, you know, from Latin, hope and joy, or joy and hope, the other way around, joy and hope, which is the treatise on the church in the modern world. And it says this in paragraph 16, in the depths of his conscience, man detects a law which he did not oppose upon himself, but which he must nonetheless obey. Always summoning him to love good and avoid evil, the voice of conscience, when necessary, speaks to his heart. Do this and shun that. For man has in his heart a law written by God, and to obey it is the very dignity of man, and according to it he will be judged. Conscience is the most secret core and sanctuary of man. There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depths. In a wonderful manner, conscience reveals the law, which is fulfilled by the love of God and neighbor. Okay. And so again, you know, I'm going to go back and look at some of those again. It says man has in his heart a law written by God. And in obeying that law is where we find our dignity. And by it, we will be judged. Okay, and so you know that's kind of the beginning then of, of the, the the talk of conscience is that conscience is where we retreat into our you know our deepest inner self in the core of our being, and in the core of our being, the core being where everything is going to come together. It's going to be you know my my conscience, my desires, my soul, my emotions, you know, everything that comes together. 
to make you and me what we are. It's in that it's in the core of that being where we are alone with God, and there we find conscience. Okay, and then the, but then that conscience has to be formed. It isn't something that we can just kind of you know take willy nilly and say, well, you know that's what it is, and you know so what. Well, the thing is with conscience, whenever you get to issues of conscience, um, you, we have a problem that we faced over the centuries with it. One of the things that um, that Pope Francis says in in Amor Sotitiae at the very beginning in paragraph 37, he's, he's you know talking to priests and to bishops and so on, and he says we have been called to form consciences, not to replace them. Okay, we have been called to form consciences and not to replace them, and um and that that's kind of a a rephrasing of what the documents of Vatican II said. You know, and back in, in the days of Vatican II, and, I, you know, there, there's a couple, we even kind of go back to the founding of the United States, I'll talk about that in a little bit too, is that what happens is it seems like every so often, whether it's the beginning of the country or whether it's the church or whatever, people reflect upon, you know, the, the great potential that is out there for people who will take responsibility for themselves, Right. And so what, you know, in the days before Vatican II, you always had people running to the local priest. Well, Father, is it a sin if if someone does this? Father, is it a sin if I do that? Well, Father, this and this happened. And they throw up all these various, you know, kinds of um, conditions and and circumstances around a particular act. So in that case, is that a sin, Father? Okay. Well, what Vatican II called people to do with the universal call to holiness, Vatican II was saying, no, let's look, gang, you know, a lot has happened over the past few centuries. We have, of course, when Vatican II came out, you know, there was books, there was television, there was radio, you know, there's things like that. Nowadays, you know, with the Internet and so on, there are there is no shortage of good materials out there that people can avail themselves to to learn about their conscience and to learn about how to correctly form the conscience. And we'll talk about what a correctly formed conscience is here in a second. But the deal is, is that, you know, w- with all this stuff that's out there, and the formation of the conscience, what the fathers of Vatican II were hoping is they said, you know, if we had a whole church of people whose consciences were formed, like the priest's consciences are formed in the seminary, you know, if we have a whole a church full of people who read and reflect on Scripture, who read and reflect on the church's teachings and, you know, understand the wisdom behind it and go, hey, you know, that kind of makes sense. I get that. Imagine what a tremendous force for good and for, you know, just bringing the presence of Christ to the world would be if you had a billion people around the world who had properly formed consciences instead of a billion people around the world that were always running to the parish priest and saying, is that a sin? Is that a sin? Is that a sin? Okay. And that was that was the, you know, the great hope that Vatican II had was that, um, you know, that people would take it upon themselves to learn more about, you know, what the Lord taught, why he taught it, the wisdom behind it, the beauty behind it, and go, you know, that just makes so much sense. Why would I want anything else? And then, you know, we would have, you know, the correct formation of conscience. You might notice that didn't really work out too well. In fact, another little kind of microcosm of that was in 1968, Pope Paul VI wrote a thing called Potentiennemi, which was an apostolic exhortation. It wasn't an encyclical, but it was it was kind of a lesser papal teaching about doing penance, you know, that we're all sinners and we all need to do penance. And what Pope Paul VI, you know, kind of zeroed in on was the then, you know, famous or infamous Catholic practice of not eating meat on Friday, not just Fridays of Lent, but all Fridays of the year, okay? And what Pope Paul VI was saying, he says, you know, gang, If we're doing this because if I eat a hamburger on Friday, it's a mortal sin, and so I'm not going to do it because I don't want to die a mortal sin for eating hamburger and going to hell. Well, then, as the Pope rightly pointed out, what kind of a sacrifice is that? 
And so the Pope said, I have an idea. Let's be individually responsible. Oh, there's a noble, novel concept for you. Let's be individually responsible for ourselves and understand the overarching principle that we all need to do penance because we are all sinners. Okay, And then but when the Pope kind of wanted to say is, you know, I mean, he, these aren't his exact words, but kind of the teaching was, if you get up on a Friday morning and you're going, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to meet on Friday. That's a good little penance and it's easy to do. And if I have a PB&J or a grilled cheese sandwich, you know, instead of something with meat on Friday, you know, great, I can do that. That's a piece of cake. But then all of a sudden, you know, you go to work and you go, hey, you know, we're, we've all been invited out to this restaurant because the regional you know, vice president of sales wants to take us all out to lunch. And, um, and you go there and then all of a sudden they drop a, you know, a sirloin steak in front of you. Are you as a Catholic then supposed to go, sorry, I'm a Catholic. I don't eat this. Well, you could. And it might not be a bad idea. It'd be a pretty good witness. But on the other hand, what, what Pope Paul VI said is he said, I know. Let's be personally responsible here. Let's form our consciences correctly and understand the overall principle that none of us is exempt from doing penance. And so maybe this person says, okay, well, I had planned on not eating meat on Friday, but I'll go ahead and eat the steak today. But then on Saturday, I'm going to spend some extra time in prayer. Or on, you know, sometime, you know, early next week, I'm going to try to hit daily mass, you know, and just kind of, you know, pray for the salvation of my soul and the salvation of the world. You know, there, there are other things that could be done. And that's what that was Pope Paul VI's great, his great you know, vision was that people would be responsible and say, well, I know I need to do penance. And so if, you know, if it isn't necessarily obligatory that I would um, abstain from meat, then I won't, but I'll do something else. That, you know, potency enemy, you know, made the world stage. And all of a sudden people said, oh, you know, Catholics can have hamburgers on Friday now. And that's as far as it went. Well, you see, you know, you look back with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and, you know, George Washington, the people that founded this country. What were they hoping for? They were hoping for liberty. They were hoping to tell people, look, you know, we are going to give you maximum freedom. But the... The boundaries on that freedom, the natural boundaries, will be personal responsibility. And the way you know personal responsibility is, you know, you have to have a correctly formed conscience. And so, you know, that would be that was the way that they had sort of envisioned the whole thing working. You might notice that's not the way it's working now. You know, we have regulation after regulation and law after law and Congress is hopelessly confused and Nobody really knows what to do because the national conscience is shot, right? And so, again, when you look at the beauty of these words from Vatican II, from Gaudium et Spes, in in, um, paragraph 16, in the depths of his conscience, man detects a law which he did not impose upon himself, but which he must nonetheless obey, okay? The law that is given to us by God, always summoning us to love good and avoid evil, the voice of conscience, when necessary, speaks to our heart and says, do this and shun that. All right. That's what conscience is about. And so, again, I think that when you look at, at the teachings of conscience from the church, and again, you know, Pope Francis saying that, you know, priests and bishops have been called to form consciences, not be a substitute for them. And again, one of the great lines that Pope Francis uses in, in Amoris Laetitiae, that um, has gotten a lot of playtime because I think it's true, was he says, let us not forget that the church's task is often like that of a field hospital. In other words, we have people that come in and they're all beat up 
you know, figuratively, sometimes literally speaking, sad to say, but usually literally, um, figuratively speaking, they're spiritually and morally beat up because their consciences are messed up. And so it's the church's responsibility to bandage up that conscience and turn it into something that works. So um, that, that's, that's kind of enough, hopefully, to get us started here. And in the second half of the program, we'll be looking at what the Catechism of the Catholic Church, how it systematizes all the stuff from, from about conscience that, that we have from the scriptures, and hopefully we can make a little bit more sense out of it. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back, and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. We're cutting to the heart of the great deception or the great lie of what conscience is and is not. And as we saw in the previous section of the program, a lot of times people think that conscience is somehow a great relativizer. You know, that, well, you know, there's there's laws out there and there's rules and, you know, there's the Ten Commandments and the teachings of the church and so on. And that's all fine as well as, as far as it goes. But my case is a little bit different. And my conscience says... I'm okay with this particular act of telling this lie. I'm okay. You know, my boss doesn't treat me very well. And, you know, this company's been ripping me off and, you know, you know, hasn't been treating me, you know, rightly as long as I've been working for him. So if I take a little bit from them here and there, it's just kind of, it's, it's balancing everything out. You know, the seventh commandment says you shall not steal. And maybe in a certain sense, this is stealing, but they kind of owe it to me. And so, again, so, you know, the first thing with conscience is it's not a side exit. It's not an escape valve. It's not a, it's not a way to get out of, of the, the demands the truth, you know, imposes upon our behavior. It's also, again, hopefully we, you know, the, the other extreme is people saying, well, if that's what conscience is, if my conscience is not formed, if I don't know any better, then I'm off the hook. Well, we don't want to do that either. And we'll see why that's the case here in just a second. We saw, again, what I'm kind of basing this whole broadcast on when this is talking about a double-edged sword, is the, um, the parable that Jesus gives in, in Luke chapter 12, when he talks about the, the, the master being away. And when the master's away, you know, what are the servants doing? And he says, you know, the, and this is in, in chapter, Luke chapter 12, verse 47, where he says, That servant who knew his master's will but did not make preparations nor act in accord with his will shall be beaten severely. In other words, if we know the will of God, if we if our conscience is formed and we freely and actively say, I ain't going to do it, you know, I'm going to do this instead. Well, then the day of judgment's not going to be a very pleasant place for us. But then it says, but the servant who is ignorant of the master's will, but acted in a way deserving of severe beating will be beaten only lightly. In other words, what the Lord is saying there is, is that if you have someone who doesn't know any better, the action itself is still morally evil. But the amount of, of accountability or responsibility that person has for that action is diminished and, and also you know, can, be, can be even totally eliminated. You know, the, the catechism talks about that as well. 
And so we can talk about that. But anyway, when in the, and this is from the Catechism in Article 6, and we're talking about in, of Part 3, and this is um, paragraph 1776. That's kind of handy to remember, the, the year that the, that the country was founded, um, from 1776 to 1794. And um, here it's talking about conscience. And in paragraph 1776, it begins with a quote from that piece from Gaudet which I read in the last in the last section, about in the depths of his conscience, man discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself, but which he must obey. We already talked about that. But then when we talk about conscience, you know, again, people will, will sit there and say, well, you know, but if my conscience is formed correctly, then it kind of straightjackets me and I can't do what I want. And that's actually, you know, kind of contrary to the truth. Because what happens is, here in 1781, conscience enables one to assume responsibility for the acts performed. Okay, in other words, one of the great things about conscience is, and the, you know, the things that you know, the human beings have when you talk about our freedom, is that we have the ability as human beings to make decisions on our own authority, which is just really kind of a remarkable thing. You have a young person that says, "Well, you know, I guess I could." study business or I could study biology. I could go into the world of business and finance or I could go into the world of engineering and technology or something like that, you know, depending on, you know, kind of what their what their aptitude is. And so then when when you have the individual that says, well, I'm going to go into the field of science and technology and study engineering or something. Well, they made a decision. They were free to make that decision. And, you know, they made that decision on their own responsibility, which is just an incredible thing. You know, that, that's how we act like God in the best of ways is when we make, you know, we make decisions on our own responsibility. And again, conscience enables us to do that. Again, that's what makes us very godlike. But at the same time, you, of course, you know, that, that conscience has to be rightly formed. Also in 1782, it says, man has the right to act in conscience and the freedom to act personally to make moral decisions. He must not be forced to act contrary to his conscience, nor must be prevented from acting according with his conscience, especially in religious matters. Okay. Now, this goes back to Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas says, really, in the end, what, it, what stands supreme before God, when all the shooting's done, all the dust settles and everything, when it's you as an individual, me as an individual, standing before God for judgment, it's going to be you and I and our individual consciences, okay? We will stand before God with our conscience, and then, you know, we're going to stand in front of God and say, well, you know, put my cards on the table and say, here's what I got, you know? And at that point, there's there's no more getting around things. There's no more rationalizations and trying to justify things and pretexts and things like that, because it's all going to be in the light of God's truth. But kind of what it comes down to when we talk about acting in accord with conscience is this. I always kind of use these two examples with the young people, and it's always kind of interesting. I always get the same response, actually with adults, too. But maybe you you can imagine this. Say it's 1916. That's a good word. Your good year. 1916. Back in 1916, there were people alive who had who had been through the Civil War. All right, and so here you are. It's in 1916, and maybe you know you're you're back in the Mississippi Bayou somewhere. You know, back in you know just some place where it's really kind of cut off from civilization. Maybe they have electricity. Maybe they don't. But there's certainly no radio or television or anything like that. And so you have you know a, a child that's born there in 1917. The adults around him would have all most of it would have been through the Civil War. And he's taught his whole life long 
that, you know, the Negroes is no good. And Mr. Lincoln had no right freeing those Negroes, you know, and so on. And so this this kid has brought up his whole life long believing that, you know, African-Americans are some kind of subhuman life and are not worthy of respect and so on. And so this guy lives his whole life long like that and dies and doesn't really know any different, you know, again, because he's cut off from the rest of civilization and so on. And he dies and appears before God for judgment. You know, is that person guilty? And you got to listen to the words very carefully here. Is that person guilty of the sin of racism? And it's always interesting. Whenever I throw this example out, we'll kind of see what you think. Most of the time I throw this example out and people say, well, no, because he didn't know any better. And I'll go, okay, but that wasn't the question. I didn't ask what he knew. I asked if he was guilty. And people kind of sit there and you can sort of the gears see the gears locking up in their head because they're going, well, I mean, yeah, the guy really did kind of have a repugnant view of humanity, but he didn't know any better. But, but, you know, and so that's where the gears kind of lock up. Well, that's when we go back to our parable with Jesus, the one who knew the master's will. In other words, someone like us in our day and age, you know, with the civil rights movement and, you know, education and, you know, radio and television and, you know, so on and so forth, you know, the world in which we live. If someone obstinately holds racist views, that person, to use Jesus' words, will get a severe beating. The judgment on that person will be severe. But when you have someone who doesn't know any different, even though the racism is just as repugnant for that person, it's just as morally evil, but that person is not held to such a high degree of accountability. And in fact, you know, the accountability can be reduced and even eliminated, the catechism says. And so when this person stands before God and sees, you know, truth in the the light of the face of the Lord God Almighty, this person, you know, this, you know, 19th century racist person is going to go, wow, I was really off base on that. I was really wrong. But he'll be able to look God in the eyes and say, but you know, God, I didn't know any better. This is what this is what I was taught. How was I supposed to know any different? And God will say that is true. See? And so therefore, that person will, even though he is guilty of the sin, will not be accountable for that sin. And that's the big difference. I mean, if you take away anything from this broadcast, take away the difference between guilt and accountability. All right? And so, um, or, you know, the other example I use, and again, this is always kind of interesting. I'll, I'll say, well, you know, what if you got a, a 17-year-old girl and she and her 17-year-old boyfriend are doing stuff they shouldn't be doing and she ends up pregnant. And so she trots on down to the, to the school nurse at her local public school there. And, um, and the nurse says, hey, don't worry about it. Now, um, I don't remember what the laws are in Kansas. I know in some states they have laws on the books where a minor can go get an abortion without parental permission or even parental notification, okay? And so this girl, say you're in one of those states, and this girl goes to her school nurse, and the school nurse is very progressive and open-minded and pro-abortion and everything, and she goes, honey, don't you worry about a thing. You know, we can take you across town to the abortion clinic. Um, the, you know, we come to class tomorrow morning. We'll take you over there. It'll be over by, to- by tomorrow afternoon. You can go home, and just like nothing ever happened. Don't have to tell your parents or nothing. And so, you know, the girl and the nurse go over to the abortion clinic. She gets the abortion. And on the way back, they have an unfortunate encounter with a truck. Okay. And they both get killed. And so now this girl is appearing before God for judgment. Is she or is she not guilty of having murdered her child? And, of course, the answer is yes. I mean, did she do it or not? Of course she did it. But is she accountable for it? Okay, And see, it's the accountability. That's the big question. The accountability part of the question is saying, well, you know, you know, look at what was going on. 
inside of this poor girl's head. She was scared. She was confused. She went to someone who she should be able to trust, you know, a figure at the school and everything, and she was led down a wrong path. Now, maybe, you know, in the core of her being, she sensed the whole time. It's like, eh, I just don't know about this. I don't know if this is right or not, but the nurse says it's okay, and the culture says it's okay, and so, well, okay. Well, then when she appears before God and see in a way that only God can do, God will say, well, yeah, you know, you got a bunch of bad advice and you were scared and, you know, you were confused. And I understand all that because I'm God. I understand everything. But there is still a certain degree of, of accountability you have here. You know, how much that is, literally only God knows. But hopefully we see the difference there between guilt, you know, culpability, in other words, guilt and accountability. Those are two different things. And so um, I think, you know, those are the things we want to we kind of want to keep in keep in mind now. um, So as we're going through this idea, then further then of trying to form our conscience to kind of figure out what a conscience is, um, the catechism talks about um, about different kinds of consciences. Okay, and so we can talk about the erroneous conscience. And an erroneous conscience is one where, just like what it says, people make erroneous judgments and acts um, because, you know, they don't know any better. Now, there are different kinds of erroneous conscience. One is um, when we we talk about ignorance. There's what we call vincible and invincible ignorance. When the ignorance is vincible, in other words, it's conquerable, I might not know the thing to do. I might have have a moral dilemma facing me. And I go, well, gee, I don't know what to do. My conscience is not really giving me very clear guidance here. What should I do? And sometimes just a simple question of, well, I'll look and see what the catechism says. I'll look what the scriptures say. Um, I'll go talk to the local parish priest. I'll ask my mom and dad. You know, I'll go talk to a teacher at school. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of resources out there. And sometimes, you know, we just don't know any better. And so, you know, we try to figure out what's right and wrong. Vincible ignorance. I don't know. I'm ignorant, but I can find the answer out without a whole lot of difference. Difficulty. But then we have invincible ignorance, okay? And with invincible ignorance, that's where someone is in a situation where it is just not reasonable to expect them to know any different, okay? And so, like, I think the example of our little 19th century racist, that's an example of invincible ignorance. So it's not reasonable to expect him to be able to find out anything different given his, his you know, situation in history and so on. He just wouldn't know any different. And so because of invincible ignorance, you know, what can he do? He just did what he, you know, he did. What he did. And um, even though he's guilty of it, he's not necessarily responsible for it. And so I think that's, you know, one of the things that, that, um, that we have to be aware of. But the other thing, too, again, this is kind of at the end of that, of that paragraph from um, Gaudium and Spes, when it says, Conscience frequently errs from invincible ignorance without losing its dignity. In other words, if you have someone who does something wrong out of invincible ignorance, they still have a good conscience. It's just, you know, they don't know any better. But it says the same cannot be said for a man who cares but little for truth and goodness or for a conscience by which degrees grows practically sightless as a result of habitual sin. In other words, sometimes people just don't know any better and, you know, God love them for it. They're doing the best they can. But at the same time, sometimes people just, you know, either because they habitually commit sin or they're just lazy. They don't want to find out. Or again, if I find out, if I have, if I'm doubting, gee, you know, maybe it's not a good thing that I'm kind of trying to right the wrong at work by stealing stuff. You know, thinking that's going to balance things out because the way I think this company has ripped me off all these years. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe I should go ask. But the problem is, if I ask, 
because my conscience is telling me way in the depths of my soul, you shouldn't be doing this. And if I go talk to, you know, the priest or something like that, and he says, well, no, you really can't be stealing things. I don't want to hear that, so I'm not going to ask, okay? That's what, again, that's kind of what, what Gaudium and Spez is talking about there. And again, in, in Amoris Laetitiae, some of the, the controversial part of that, you know, what, what whenever I read through it, you know, the, the media was having a heyday with it because the media is incapable of understanding anything that has to do with spirituality or truth or morals or anything like that. And as I was reading it, I was going, you know, I don't know because I've never met Pope Francis, but I just kept on hearing that parable of Jesus over and over again. And because what Pope Francis was saying in here, he's talking about it's on, it's on the on love in the family is what the what the book is about or what the encyclical is about. And in it, he was talking about how you know, you have people that just kind of get into these wacky situations, okay? And sometimes it's just out of poverty. You know, the part of the world that the Pope comes from, you know, there's there's a lot of people there that will just kind of, well, you know, there's no way we can really afford a wedding. And so the man just moves in with the woman, the woman moves in with the man, and, you know, they start having babies, and, you know, they kind of just sort of schlep through life. And what the Pope was saying is, you know, in, in cases like this, you know, maybe, you know, what we should be doing is rather than just automatically assuming these people are, are guilty, you know, they're culpable, maybe what we could do is, you know, we can look at the look at the action. The action itself is morally objectionable, okay? The idea of, you know, people that are having sex that are not married, you know, it's, it's, it's fornication. It's, it's bad news. It's a sin. Um, but here you have, you know, maybe a poor couple that live out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, that's just kind of what's done in their parts. Um, it doesn't make it right, but it also does not make them morally responsible. Okay, and that's the big difference. And that's one of the things I think that the Pope was talking about. And again, there's a couple of places in there where, he's, where the, the, the things he's suggesting are things that, you know, we do these all the time. We do this all the time in parishes anyway, even in the United States, where I think most people know deep in their heart of hearts that before you move in with somebody and you're sharing the same bed with them, you need to be married with them. And, um, you know, I think, again, most people know that they just choose to disregard it for any number of disordered reasons. But the thing is, is a lot of times what ends up happening is after these people go through a couple of failed relationships and so on, and they kind of they learn, you know, by the University of Hard Knocks that this isn't the way to go, then they finally kind of get their act together and they meet up with someone and they, you know, it's like they do the same thing. They move in with them and everything. And sometimes there's a previous marriage, there's an annulment or, you know, things has to be kind of worked through. But, you know, they come to the parish and, you know, we work through them with these things. And then, you know, we can celebrate the sacrament of matrimony with them. Um, it's always, you know, done in more of a subdued way. Um, you're not going to have a, you know, a white dress and candles and flowers and tuxedos and, you know, bridesmaids and groomsmen and things like that. You know, you usually just have the, the couple and, and the witnesses to their vows. And they, you know, they come into the church and we just do a little, you know, do a little wedding ceremony for them there. And then they're off and running, um, which is exactly what Pope Francis says to do. You know, he says that, you know, that you have these people that are in these situations, they can be guided towards a discreet celebration of the sacrament of matrimony, which is exactly his words. And so, again, I, you know, we can see here that, you know, the idea of, of the conscience, you know, that's kind of what we're, you know, kind of the direction that we're trying to work towards is getting, again, like what the, what the Pope says, you know, we're not here to replace people's consciences. We're here to form them. Um, and that's a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to form someone's conscience. Um, it has to start when, you know, the kids are tiny tykes and, you know, it goes all through life. And that's one of the reasons why we have such things as Catholic radio, you know, so that we can kind of keep on helping people, you know, to form their consciences. 
Again, as we read in the Catechism, um, this is in, in, in um, paragraph 1784, it says, The education of conscience is a lifelong task. From the earliest years, it awakens a child to the knowledge and practice of the interior law recognized by conscience, which Gaudium its best talked about. Prudent education teaches virtue. It prevents or cures fear, selfishness, and pride, resentment arising from guilt, and feelings of complacency born of human weaknesses and faults. The education of the conscience guarantees freedom and engenders peace of heart. Okay? The education of the conscience guarantees freedom and engenders peace of heart. So, again, one of the things we talked about in the very first part of the first part of the program was this idea that, well, if I don't know any better, um, since, you know, if, if I can appear before God and just plead ignorance on this stuff, well, then maybe I don't want my conscience formed. Well, you can do that. And it might work on the Day of Judgment. I don't know. But one thing I think is pretty certain is that people that live like that, people that really have no idea of what right and wrong is, and they, and they, make, no, they make no attempt to find out what right and wrong is, their lives on earth, to use a simple word, tend to be hell. All right? And I don't know if you've seen it, but if, if you're in law enforcement, if you're a social worker, you know, people that are out there, you know, that are dealing with, you know, people in the toughest parts of their lives. Usually, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you're working, you, know, you go to the prisons, go to the jails and stuff like that. Um, all the times I've spent visiting prisons and jails and saying mass in prisons and visiting prisoners and things like that. You know, I've never been in fear of my life in these places. Because I don't really think that a lot of these people in the, in the prisons are bad people. They're, you know, unbelievably ignorant a lot of times. Um, and and there, there are bad people in the prisons, but they kind of keep them in special pods all by themselves. And um, even the regular prisoners don't want to go in there. You know, they say, that's bad news over there. Those people are nuts. But when you look at you know, what ends up happening, you know, you can just kind of connect the dots here. You know, you have someone that figures... Well, you know, I can, again, I'm my own boss. Freedom means I can do whatever the hell I want. And so freedom means I can drop out of school when I'm 16 years old. Okay, well, drop out of school when you're 16 years old. Then what happens? Well, you know, you don't really have much of a job. Or, you know, you've got that young, strong 16-year-old body. You get a job that um, requires a lot of, you know, physical, you know, strenuous work and things like that. And maybe for a while, yeah, you're doing pretty good. You know, you're bringing home a pretty good paycheck and, and so on for about, you know, 10 or 12 years. But then, you know, the body starts to, you know, kind of push back a little bit. And say, wait, man, you know, I can't be doing the same kind of work I did when I was 16, 17 years old. Things are starting to slow down. And then all of a sudden, then this poor, this poor person finds themselves, you know, not being able to get quite that good a paying job. And then, you know, looking back and going, gee, well, I lost those years and I could have trained for a better job. And then they find themselves in a, in a pickle. And then maybe they deal with the, with the difficulty by drinking and, you know, getting violent at home and so on. And so, again, you know, the, the idea of a, of a well-formed conscience being a straitjacket that, the you know, in other words, the better I know the rules of engagement, then all of a sudden I'm straitjacketed and I can't go off and do what I want. That's a, that's a really perverted notion of what freedom is. And instead, again, as the catechism says, the education of the conscience guarantees freedom and engenders peace of heart. That if we have a well-formed conscience, we know what right and wrong is, then, yeah, there are certain things I'm probably going to have to deny myself, and there are certain directions I'm going to have to go instead. But those things, you know, we're going to find ourselves being happier people for it. And again, I think that all we have to do is just look around at the misery that we have in, in American culture, and we'll just limit that, limit our observations for here, because that's where we live. But when you look at the, at the misery that we've, that we've imposed upon ourselves, 
mostly because of malformed consciences and mostly because of invincible ignorance. These are, again, this isn't stuff that, that we otherwise would not be able to find out. This is stuff that's very easy to find out what the truth about the matter is. And the only question is, are we going to conform ourselves to it and do it or not? And in most cases, people just either, number one, they don't care. And number two, if they do find out, they're not going to do it anyway. And then we wonder why we have, you know, these tremendous divorce rates and children living in poverty and, you know, underperforming kids in school because of, you know, problems at home and so on. I found it kind of, you know, interesting, you know, with all these terrible shootings that we seem to have, whenever the little talking heads get together on TV and they're trying to, you know, well, we just need to have more laws. You know, we need to have more programs and spend more money on this, that, and the other thing. And every once in a while, you'll have, you know, somebody will get up and say, well, no, um, maybe let's look at the families. Where are the fathers? Where are the dads? You know, and, um, and with, you know, without dads and without fathers to provide, you know, this kind of guidance, this is the kind of, of mayhem that we get. And sometimes, you know, the other talking heads will kind of politely acknowledge that. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. But that's not where we're going right now. Let's talk about, you know, the government's responsibility to spend more money. It's like, well, you know, we've been doing that for all the good that's done for us. Or they're just ridiculed. You know, well, we, you know, there is no Pollyanna going back to the 1950s with father's no father knows best and leave it to Beaver. Those days are over with, you know, forget about it. Well, you know, I think the thing is, is all we have to do is look at the at the the chaos and the, and the hell that we've imposed upon ourselves by vincible ignorance, by willingly not seeking out the truth to form our consciences, you know, we can see, you know, what, what that's done for us. And it's not been anything any good at all, to be sure. So, again, hopefully, you know, looking at these things, you know, beginning with the gospel, a little bit of Vatican II, a little bit of catechism, a little bit of Pope Francis, you know, we can see, you know, that this really kind of all holds together as an integral, you know, whole. And, um, Anyone that would take the time to read through this stuff, which, believe me, it's not that hard to do. It just takes a little bit of time and effort. You know, we would, you know, see the beauty of it and see how it all kind of holds together. And, and you know, be, it would be something, that, again, that we wouldn't look at as something that's limiting my freedom, but something, that, again, as the catechism says, will bring us peace of heart. It will bring us true freedom. So, again, that's, you know, kind of a little bit, a little bit of a reflection on conscience and what it is and what it is not. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website at dv, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.